Well, good morning, church. Um, first day of the year and y'all are in church, so y'all are off to a great start. Um, it is uh, such an honor to have an opportunity to share a teaching with you from God's word. So last Sunday, we celebrated at Christmas the advent of Christ, how Christ came and dwelt among us. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is to turn our attention to the second advent of Christ, his second coming. So if you have your Bibles, be turning to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. We'll be in uh, chapter 19. We're going to take a look at verses 6 and 7 here in just a moment. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Now, uh, before we read those verses, as you're turning there, I'd like to share a few quotes with you. And the first one is from our very own senior pastor, Adam Robinson, something that he said on the morning of October 23rd during his sermon series on the worldview. And how about the worldview sermon series? Wasn't that incredible? Can I get an amen on that? Wow. Yeah. Just blessing. Now, um, before I share this quote from Adam, I want us to do something that, that we don't do near enough. So we have this senior pastor who blesses us with these awesome sermons week in and week out. Uh, Christmas Eve, he led us in three services. He was back the next morning leading us in a service. And then as an elder, I can tell you there's countless hours of meetings with elders and deacons and staff members. There's the time that he spends in counseling and hospital visitation. Would you join me in, in showing Adam how much we appreciate all he does for our church? We love you, Adam. Thanks for all that you do for us. So on the morning of October 23rd this year, this is uh, something that Adam said. He said, one of the most important metaphors for our relationship with the Lord is marriage. Now, this is so true. We see marriage symbolism being used throughout the scriptures. I could put up dozens of examples of scriptures that, that illustrate this. But for the purpose of time's sake, I'm going to just choose two, one from the Old Testament, one from the New so listen to the words of God here spoken through his prophet Isaiah. God says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So here God is describing his covenant relationship with, the, with his covenant people in the Old Testament. And he describes it using marriage symbolism. He calls himself the bridegroom and he calls his people his bride. Now we jump to the New Testament and listen to the words of Paul as he writes his second letter to the believers at Corinth. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So here Paul is describing the new covenant relationship we have with Christ and he uses marriage symbolism. He calls it a betrothal and he calls Christ our husband. And then Tim Keller, a prominent theologian in our day, said this, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. And so that brings us to our focal text that I'd like us to take a look at. So Revelation chapter 19 will be in verse 6. So the Apostle John, in his older days, during a time of intense uh, persecution of Christians, was put in, in, in exile on the island of Patmos. And there he received a vision from Christ. Christ revealed to him all of this information about his second coming, told him to write it down on a scroll. And we have that as the book of Revelation. Now, in this book, there is a lot of symbolism. There is a time of great tribulation upon mankind. Um, there is a time when Christ defeats the enemies of, of the evil one. And then that all leads up to, builds up to this scene that we're going to take a look at here in Revelation 19. So starting in verse 6, John says this. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. So John here is seeing this heavenly multitude and they're all shouting hallelujah. There's a celebration in heaven and he describes it as peals of thunder. So why all of this celebration in heaven? And so we read on the rest of the verse and it says, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So here we see in heaven, Christ being united with With the church, with believers, Christ is called the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of this celebration that John sees in heaven is because now, finally, Christ is united with believers. And so the church then is all believers from the time of Christ's first advent until he returns. That's that's the bride of Christ. And all of this celebration is because Christ is now being united with his bride. And then it says his bride has made herself ready. So what does that mean? And why would that be important for us? So the church is, is the bride of Christ collectively. But if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you are the bride of Christ. So this is talking about you right here. So it says his bride has made herself ready. So what does that mean? And have we made ourselves ready? That is what I'd like us to ponder this morning. So would you pray with me for a moment? Heavenly Father... Your word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It is eternal. It is the lamp to our feet, the light to our path. And so this morning, we ask you to illuminate your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look into your marvelous word. And it's the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Sometimes, as we go along our life's journey of doing our daily routines, sometimes our path will be crossed by somebody else's path. And that intersection, as brief as it may be, can have a huge and lasting impact upon us. And so I'd like to share with you one such occasion that happened to me in the workplace. Now, this was about six to eight years ago, but it seems like yesterday. I mean, time just flies. So, so this is what I do for a living. I'm an anesthesiologist. I put people to sleep for a living. So I'm, I'm hoping I don't put anybody to sleep this morning. I'm also good at waking people up. So, so I've got my eyes on you. Um, so, uh, so about six to eight years ago, I was standing right where you see me in this picture right here. I was in our preoperative admitting area and I was uh, about to go behind the curtain that you see here and inter- interview what would be one of my first patients of the day. Now, from the chart, I knew this to be a young lady in her mid 20s and she was having this surgery that's called a middle ear reconstruction. Now, that's a big surgery. It takes a little more than three hours to accomplish. And it's uh, it's done to try to restore hearing loss in one of the ears. Um, The surgeon actually has to drill down through the bone behind the ear, enter into the middle ear compartment, and there try to reconstruct these three tiny little bones that you probably remember from biology, the the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. So they connect on one side to the eardrum and the other side to the sensory organ of the ear. And so this surgery is an attempt to reconstruct that and and try to restore the hearing for this young lady in her mid-20s. Now, from the chart, I wasn't sure how to pronounce her name. So the first thing I did when I walked behind that curtain and introduced myself was I said, now, how do you, how do you pronounce your name? And she said, my name is Inania. And when Inania told me her name, she spoke in this dialect, this accent that, that I couldn't place. It was very distinct. So I said, where are you from, Inania? She said, I'm from Jerusalem, to which I said, as in Israel. She said, yes, I flew in from Israel to have this surgery. 
Now, I've been at our little surgery center for about 16 years. That's never happened before or since. We don't have an international clientele at our little surgery center. We don't have people flying in from overseas to have surgery at our surgery center. So later during the surgery, I asked the surgeon how it was that this young lady came here to Birmingham to our little surgery center to have her surgery. And what he told me was that Inania's father was a Jewish Orthodox rabbi who had been assigned here to Birmingham. And, and he and his wife wanted her to have surgery here so that they could help take care of her afterwards. And then he shared this story with me. He said, the most amazing thing happened when I was meeting with her and her father to schedule this surgery. The thing that they were fixated on was not the surgery itself, but how long after the surgery it would be until she could get her ear wet. So he said, I told him, oh, it's imperative that you keep the ear dry until it's completely healed. If it were to get wet, it could set up an infection and an infection in the middle ear could uh, undo the surgery. And being so close to the brain, it could be potentially life threatening. So it's, it's just so important to keep the ear dry until it's completely healed. But they, but they kept pressing him and they wanted an exact time frame after the surgery until she could get her ear wet. And so we said, what's going on? Well, it turns out that Inania was engaged to be married. And in Jewish orthodoxy, a Jewish bride just before her marriage, just before her wedding, immerses in water. A procedure somewhat similar to what we do with our baptism. She basically baptizes herself just before the wedding. So the surgeon said, well, just have her keep her ear out of the water. To which the rabbi said, no, no, she has to go completely under. So then the surgeon said, I told them this. If you'll wait this much time after the surgery, and I, I can't remember what that time frame was today, but he gave him a specific time frame. And he said, if you'll wait this much time after the surgery, and then if she were to take a little piece of cotton and put some Vaseline on that, wedge that down in her ear canal. And then when she went under, if she would come immediately back up and quickly remove that, I think that would be okay. To which her father said, no, that will not be okay. Every part of her has to be in touch with the water or it's invalid. Now, that story fascinated me to no end. I had never heard of that. I had never heard that a Jewish bride just before her wedding basically baptizes herself. And if one small spot, an eardrum that's not much larger than the tip of a pencil eraser down in in the ear canal, if just that one little spot isn't in touch with the water, it invalidates the whole thing. And feel the gravity of this. I mean, this was so important to her. She was so determined to accomplish this that she would risk a potential infection that could undo her surgery, cost her her hearing, and even be potentially life-threatening. Wow. Now, that story on that day caused me to want to learn more about Jewish marriage customs, particularly ancient Jewish marriage customs from biblical times. Because as we said earlier, marriage symbolism plays a huge role in the scriptures. And that marriage symbolism is ancient Jewish marriage symbolism. And so how much of that might be lost to us? Because in a congregation like ours, probably most of us don't have a Jewish background and we're separated from biblical times by 2000 years. So how much of this ancient marriage symbolism that we're reading in the scriptures might be lost to us because we're not Jewish living in in biblical times? So what I'd like to do this morning is share with you some of the things that I've learned about ancient Jewish marriage customs. So ancient Jewish marriages had two phases to them, somewhat similar to our two phases. We have an engagement phase and later there's a wedding ceremony. In ancient Jewish marriages, there was a betrothal phase and later a wedding ceremony. But there were vast differences between the meaning of their betrothal and our engagement and the meaning in the wedding ceremony themselves. And so we'll touch on that as we go along this morning. 
So let's let these two cartoon characters represent our potential Jewish bride and groom. And let's talk about the process that they would go through to become married. Now, in the first century, um, families lived together in an extended dwelling situation called the Bet Av. The word means the house of the father, the father's house. Typically, you would have a courtyard and you would have rooms built around that. Uh, Successive generations would add on rooms. And so you'd have multiple generations living under one roof. Now, when when a young man was to take a bride, he would... For the betrothal, he would go to the dwelling place of the bride, and there would be three things that were involved. The first one was called the mohar, and the word means literally means bride price. Now, this was a financial offering, most of which went to the father of the bride. Some of it went to the bride herself. The uh, typical bride price was 30 to 40 shekels, which would translate into about three to four years of wages. Um, It could be paid as shekels. It could be paid as a certain amount of livestock or a certain amount of grain. So there's different ways of paying this. Now, it would be incorrect to think of this as a purchase price for the bride as if she were some property to be bought and sold. It was actually quite the opposite. So in the first century time period, everybody in the household had a very important role to play. They had their chores, their responsibilities. And so the loss of a daughter to marriage would be the loss of a very valuable person in the household. And so this was believed to be a way of compensating the father of the bride for the loss of this important person in his household. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, there's several examples of bride prices being paid. And I thought just for time's sake, I'd like to share one with you sort of quickly. So you're probably familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau and how Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, who was blind and received the blessing that was rightly due to Esau. Now, later when Esau found out about this, he was furious and he determined to kill Jacob. So Jacob, at the advice of his mother, Rebekah, fled for his life and he went to the area of Haran and stayed with his uncle Laban. Now, there in Haran, staying with Laban, he met Laban's daughter, Rachel, and fell in love with her and wanted to marry her, wanted to take her as his bride. But he had no mohar. He had no bride price. He had literally fled with just the clothes on his back. And so we'll pick up the story right here. So this is Genesis 29. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for Rachel. So here we see in this verse that the bride price that was paid to acquire Rachel as his bride was seven years of labor. So um, this is not a foreign concept even in our day. There's a parallel even in our day when a young man asks a woman to be his bride. He typically offers an engagement ring that has some financial value to it. So a little parallel even in our day. The second thing that was involved was called the ketubah. Now, this was the actual covenant of the marriage. It was a written covenant. In our weddings, we say our vows, our promises and expectations, things like I promise to love you in sickness and in health or I promise to forsake all others. And Jewish weddings, they actually write them down into this document called a ketubah that they sign on the day of the wedding. And this is typically made into a fancy document that can be framed and displayed somewhere in the home. The third thing that's involved is called the cup of acceptance. This was a cup of wine that was offered to the bride and her drinking it was a symbolic way of saying I do. So if she agreed to the bride price and the stipulation involved in the ketubah, the the covenant of this marriage, then she would, if she agreed to take this man as, as, her, as, 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 her, as her husband and, and become his bride, then she would drink from the cup, and that would be a symbolic way of saying, I do. The groom would drink from it as well, and this would seal the betrothal, and they would become betrothed. 
This has a carryover in Jewish weddings even in our day as well. At Jewish weddings, the bride is typically offered the cup of acceptance. And drinking from the cup is a symbolic way of saying, I do. And you can see in this next picture right here on the right, even the groom drinks from the cup. Now, having drank the cup of acceptance and becoming, become betrothed, they are considered husband and wife at this point. They are considered married. But they're not together yet. Rather, the groom goes back to his father's house and he prepares a place where they will dwell together called a hoopah. The, the word literally means bride chamber. It's the bride chamber in, the, in his father's house where he will live with his bride. Now, this has hold over even in today's Jewish weddings as well. Jewish couples are typically married under a canopy. And the name of this canopy takes its name from the ancient hoopah. It's called a hoopah. And some of these are very elaborate. So... Um, so at this point, they're, they're, um, they're considered husband and wife. They're betrothed. Um, and there's an excellent uh, example of this even in the Christmas story. So listen to how Matthew describes the, the birth of Christ. So this is Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we, several, so we see several things that we just talked about in these two verses right here. So we, they are in the betrothal phase, but they haven't had the wedding yet, but they're not together yet. But even though they're not together and they haven't had the wedding, he's referred to as her husband. And to break this off would require a divorce. So that is one difference between our engagement phase and the ancient Jewish betrothal phase. So in our engagements, either party can break it off before the wedding with no repercussions. And in the betrothal in the ancient times, to end the betrothal, you had to have divorce proceedings. The bride price would have to be paid back. So when would be the time of the wedding? Well, it, deter- it was determined by how long it took for this groom to prepare the hoopah, the place where they would dwell together in his father's house. So if there was a room available, that might mean nothing more than furnishing it with furniture and decorations. But sometimes a room would have to be added on. And this groom is, is doing his normal responsibilities of perhaps farming or harvesting or whatever that might be. And he's working on this addition in his spare time. So this could take even up to a year or more. But the thing is, the person who decided, who determined when the wedding could occur was not the groom himself, but his father. His father had to make his approval of the preparations. Now, what I read about this was this was a safety measure that was put in place to prevent a groom who was so eager, so hasty to get his bride that he would do, you know, like a shabby job on on the hoopah, you know. And so uh, nobody wants that. So the, the father of the groom would have to give his approval. But when the father gave and and during this time, if one of his friends were to say, and when is the day of your wedding? All he could say is, well, I don't know. You'll have to ask my father. It's up to him. But when the father gave his approval, a messenger would be sent to the bride to announce to her that, you know, today is the day of your wedding. And then there would be this trumpet called a shofar that would be blown to announce to friends and family that the wedding is about to take place. There's going to be this big celebration. And the bride would immerse in living water. To prepare herself for her upcoming wedding. Uh, And this is what Inania was wanting to do before her wedding day. Let's talk about living water for just a second. Living water is flowing water. Like the water of a river or a stream uh, or spring water. That's what living water is. And the Jews created these structures called a mikvah. 
um, for convenience. So you don't have to walk to some stream and immerse. You could immerse in this structure called a mikvah. It's very similar to our baptistry. The difference is that a mikvah has to have an inflow of water and an egress of water. It has to be flowing or living water. And so most synagogues and, and major cities will have a, a mikvah that you see in these pictures for where, uh, where you could immerse and be ceremonially clean. And some of these are pretty elegant. In ancient times, in the time of Christ, there were these mikvahs. And this is a picture of, of the uh, ruins of one of these mikvahs. Uh, you'll see these if you go to the Holy Land, particularly around Jerusalem, because when people came to the temple to, uh, to worship, to offer their sacrifice, they had to be ceremonially clean. They had to immerse in a mikvah before going up to the temple. For example, the Pool of Siloam that we read about where Jesus told the blind man to go and wash the mud from his eyes and be healed from his blindness was believed to be like this large swimming pool sized mikvah fed by the living waters of the Gihon Spring where, where, where they could accommodate the masses of people that would come for the feast days like Passover. So then the groom goes to the house of the bride, collects her and takes her to the place that he's prepared for her at his father's house. And then we have this celebration that would last sometimes up to seven days. It was at a wedding celebration like this that Jesus performed his first recorded miracle of turning water into wine. And Jewish weddings, even in our day, are known for their very elaborate celebrations. All right. So that is a lot of information about ancient Jewish marriage customs. Now, with that background, what I'd like us to do is sort of like think about Jesus and how he might have fulfilled the many aspects of the ancient Jewish marriage customs. So let's go through this one more time, but let's put Jesus into the equation and, and, and let's, let's see if Jesus fulfilled all of these different things uh, related to ancient Jewish marriage customs. So in the scriptures, do we see Jesus leaving the place where he dwelt with his father to go to the dwelling place of his bride in order to enter into this covenant relationship? Absolutely, right? That's what we celebrated last Sunday, right? At, at Christmas. This was the advent of Christ when Christ came to the place of his bride to enter into this covenant relationship. The scripture said he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And do we see a bride price that Jesus paid to acquire his bride? Jesus paid the greatest price ever paid to acquire a bride. He paid it with his life on the cross. This was the great price that Jesus paid to acquire his bride. And Paul seems to allude to this in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says to them, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So speaking of this great price that Jesus paid in order to acquire his bride. And was there a ketubah, a written covenant? To see the written covenant involved in the new covenant relationship we have with Christ, we have to go back 600 years before the time of Christ. So listen to the words of God spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. God says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Let's pause there just for a second. So God here is talking about his covenant people. Now, at this time, the Israelites were a divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's talking about his people here. And he says, there's going to be a time in the future when I will make a new covenant with my people. Now, we know from Romans 11 that we Gentiles are grafted into the tree that was Israel. So in the future, this is talking about us as well. So God says, there's going to be a time in the future where I'll make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Here he's talking about the Exodus and how God delivered them from Egypt, led them to Mount Sinai, and, then, and there entered into the covenant that we call the covenant of the law. He says it's not going to be like that. 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Notice the marriage symbolism. God calls himself the husband in the old covenant relationship. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So we see this written covenant. This new covenant is a written covenant written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So there is a ketubah, a written covenant written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Do we see a cup of acceptance playing a role in in the scriptures? To see the role of the cup of acceptance, we have to dive down deep into the events that happened the night before Jesus went to the cross. So the night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, a meal that we call the Last Supper. Now, the Passover is one of the seven annual feasts that God commanded his people to observe every year. It was, a meal, uh, it was a meal of remembrance where they would remember how God delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. Jesus is going to change the symbolism of this meal, and it's going to be about him. And he's going to say, from now on, when you observe this, no longer observe it and how God saved you from your bondage in Egypt. Egypt. From now on, when you observe it, do it in remembrance of me and how I saved you from your sins, your bondage to sin that leads to death. Now, the Passover meal is a very symbolic meal. There's a lot of symbolism involved. It's a very lengthy meal. It lasts a little more than three hours. And it turns out that there were four cups of wine that, that played a role throughout the Passover meal. And each one of these cups is going to be symbolic of a promise that God gave to his people when he met with Moses at the burning bush. So meeting with Moses at the burning bush, this is Exodus chapter 6. God says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Each one of these promises will begin with the words, I will. So here's the first promise. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then the second promise, I will free you from being slaves to them. And then the third promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then the fourth promise, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now, one of the uh, names for the Passover meal is the Seder. And that word comes from the Hebrew word that means order. It was a very ordered service. So as you look at this picture of this Jewish family observing the Passover meal, they're all holding these books. And in these books gives the order of the service. It gives the deep symbolism that's involved, the scriptures that are to be read, the prayers that are to be prayed. And so um, what I would like us to do this morning is sort of like sort of move through the Passover meal And see how these four cups of wine play a role. Now, we're going to to skip over a good bit of this for time's sake. So the first thing that happens in the Passover meal, number one up here, is the Kaddish. And this is where the first cup of wine is taken. And the Kaddish means the prayer of thanksgiving. So at the beginning of the meal, the leader of the Passover meal would, would lead a prayer of thanksgiving. And this would be where the first cup was taken. The first cup was called, and, and Jesus being the leader of the Last Supper would have been the one to lead this. And this is probably what we read about in Luke twenty two seventeen when it says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. So this cup then, the cup at the, at the giving of thanks would be the first cup. And the first cup was called the cup of sanctification from God's promise, I will bring you out. The word sanctify means to be set apart, to be holy to God. So God was going to set them apart from Egypt to be his holy people. He was going to sanctify them. And so that's the first cup right there. The second thing that happens in the Passover meal is the washing of the hands. So somebody would bring a basin around and allow everybody to wash their hands. Perhaps this is the part of the Last Supper that we read about where Jesus takes the basin. And instead of having them wash their hands, he himself washes their feet. 
Now, there's so much going on here. I mean, this would be a whole sermon by itself. I mean, an object lesson in servant leadership, uh, the fact that it is Jesus that truly cleanses us. Um, but perhaps then in the, past, in the Last Supper, this was the part of that where Jesus did that really incredible act. The third thing that happens is there's these bitter herbs that are dipped into salt water. The bitterness symbolized the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. The salt water symbolizing the tears that were shed in Egypt. And then we come to the fourth part, and this is called the breaking of the middle matzah. And I love the symbolism involved here. So you had this pouch that had three compartments, each holding a a piece of unleavened bread. So the bread at the Passover meal had to be unleavened, um, bread without yeast. Yeast throughout the scriptures uh, symbolizes sin and impurity. On one occasion, Jesus would say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And what he meant by that was the, the impure, false teachings of the Pharisees. So it had to be unleavened bread. And for this part of the meal, they would take out the middle piece. And that piece would be broken into two pieces. And the larger of the two pieces was called the afikomen. The afikomen was then wrapped in a cloth and it was hidden away somewhere in the house and then later, my clickers, later, um, later the children would have this game where they would go and they would seek and to find this hidden afikomen. And the child that, that finds it comes forth with great joy because they get the prize. So um, the, the, hidden, the breaking of the middle matzah. Now, I love the symbolism in this because perhaps then this is the part of the Passover meal that we read about where Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and then makes it symbolic, uh, makes it symbolic of his body. It says he took the bread saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. So truly, Jesus was unleavened bread. He was without sin. And then think about the afikomen. So if if this was the part of the meal where Jesus used to symbolize his body, then like the afikomen, Jesus's body would be wrapped in cloth, hidden away in a tomb, only to come forth later to great joy to, to those that find it. So I love this symbolism here. Now we come to the actual meal itself, and this is when the second cup of wine is taken. There would be this lengthy telling of the Passover story. When it came time to the time of the plagues, with each plague, they would pour a little wine in the cup. And that cup would be the second cup, and that was taken with the meal. And the second cup was called the cup of deliverance from God's promise, I will bring you, I will free you from being slaves. Now... Five all the way through seven here. And then if we flip the page all the way down through 11, this is the actual meal itself. And all the different food items had symbolic meaning. And we're going to skip over most of that for time, except for we, I don't want us to skip over the main course here. The main part of this meal was the Passover lamb, the consumption of the Passover lamb. And this is where we see Jesus as our Passover lamb. And Paul really alludes to this here in his first letter to the Corinthians when Paul says, For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here, this feast is the Passover feast. And Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so because of that, we should be as unleavened bread without sin. Now we come to the 12th part up here. This is when the children, this is after the meal, after the supper, and the children go and they seek out that hidden afikomen that we talked about. And then we come to the third cup of wine, and this is the cup of wine after supper. And perhaps this is the cup that Jesus used to be symbolic of his blood that would be shed on the cross. So the third cup was called the cup of redemption from God's promise. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And that just makes sense because it's the blood of Christ that redeems us, pays the price for our sins. And think of the symbolism here because Christ truly did redeem us with his arms outstretched on the cross. 
Um, And so perhaps then this is what we read about here in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, when it says in the same way after the supper, he took the cup. So this is the cup after supper, the third cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So perhaps the third cup, then the cup of redemption. Now, something really interesting happens in in the gospel of Matthew concerning this. So. Jesus speaking says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We just said that was the third cup. Now, reading on, Jesus is going to say, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I bring it, when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So after taking the third cup, giving it the symbolic meaning of his blood being shed on the cross, Jesus refuses to drink any more wine until he drinks it new in the father's kingdom. It turns out there is still a fourth cup that happens at the end of the Passover meal in the part of the meal called the Hallel. The word Hallel in Hebrew means praise. It's from where we get the word Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh or praise God. So they would sing praise songs to God. And this is when the fourth cup would be taken. But Jesus refuses to drink this cup. So why was that? Why would he refuse to drink that cup? The fourth cup will end. Moving on here, we know that they celebrated the Hallel because in Matthew twenty six thirty it says when they had sung a, a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this singing of a hymn here would be the Hallel portion of the Passover meal. So they participated in the Hallel, but Jesus refused to drink the cup that went along with it. So the fourth cup was called the cup of acceptance from God's promise. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now, this is the same name as the cup that's offered to a bride at the betrothal. But Jesus refuses to drink this cup. So why is that? If we make a comparison to the marriage symbolism that that we talked about earlier, it sort of makes sense. Because the cup of acceptance is taken after the price has been paid, after the bride price has been paid. But the night before Jesus went to the cross, he had yet to pay the bride price, his death on the cross. So drinking the cup of acceptance would be premature. And then something interesting happens if we go along this reasoning. So that night in the Mount of Olives, Jesus is arrested. He is falsely accused, falsely tried. The next morning, he will be condemned to be crucified by Pilate. And he was taken to Golgotha. And we'll pick up the story right here. So Mark 15 says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. So most believe that the wine was offered to victims before the crucifixion because it was to to, dull their senses before this horrible agony of crucifixion. But Jesus, in keeping with his promise the night before, refuses to drink it. And then let's look at the last words of Jesus from the cross. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So now, on the cross, having paid the price, the bride price, his, his blood that was shed on the cross, Jesus can now drink the cup of acceptance. So perhaps Jesus drank the cup of acceptance on the cross. Now, back to our our. our our marriage uh, customs after drinking the, after paying the great price for his bride um, and, and after drinking the cup of acceptance, do we see Jesus going back to his father's house to prepare a place where we will dwell with him at the last supper? This, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, in my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. 
So just like in the, in the Jewish marriage customs, Jesus has now gone to his father's house to prepare a place for us. And do we see... Uh, this time when the wedding is going to occur, how long is that going to be? When is the second coming of Christ? When is the wedding going to occur? Jesus' disciples asked him, his followers asked him the same question on the Mount of Olives one evening, looking, looking over the, the city of Jerusalem. They asked, when will be the time of your return? When will you come back? And listen to what Jesus said. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Just like in, in the Jewish marriage customs, his father has to give approval and say when the wedding is going to be. And do we see then when God finally gives his approval and says, OK, it's time for you to take your bride and have your wedding. Do we see a messenger being sent to the bride and a trumpet being blown to announce to everyone that a wedding is about to take place? And so look at the words of Paul here in First Thessalonians. The Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of of the archangel, a messenger of God, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the bride, to prepare herself for her upcoming wedding, would immerse in living water. On one occasion, Jesus went out to the living waters of the, of the Jordan River to be baptized while John, to be immersed while John was baptizing. Um, now, John's baptism was a baptism for the repentance of sins. And he didn't understand why Jesus would come because Jesus had no sin. So we'll pick this up in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So why was Jesus immersed, baptized in the living waters of the Jordan River? Well, it wasn't for repentance of sin because he had no sin. And certainly it was an example for us. But one of the things I learned as I was studying about these ancient Jewish marriage customs was this. It wasn't just the bride that immersed before her upcoming wedding. The groom also immersed. So is it possible that one of the reasons that Jesus immersed in the living waters of the Jordan River was to prepare himself for his upcoming wedding, like a groom would prepare himself for his upcoming wedding. Now, if that's the case, then something really interesting happens just after this. So the next thing that we read about and, and concerning John the Baptist, his, uh, his followers, his disciples come to him and they're concerned because now all the people that were coming out to follow him are now following after Jesus. So this is John chapter 3. They, this is John the Baptist's disciples, came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, they're talking about Christ. Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now listen to John's response to this. If I can get it up there. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. So after Jesus immerses himself like a groom would, would pre prepare himself for his upcoming wedding, John the Baptist begins referring to him as the bridegroom. And he calls himself the friend who attends or the best man. All right, so 
Do we see Jesus then after his second coming, taking his bride to the place that God that he that he prepared in, in, in the father's house and, and, and this great celebration that will occur? That's the verses that follow our, our focal text this morning. So in Revelation nineteen nine it says, then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. So we see this great celebration in heaven when Christ is united with his bride after the wedding. So. We talked about a lot of ancient Jewish marriage customs and how Jesus fulfilled all of those. Um, and let's, let's go back then to our focal text here that we started with. So John sees this wedding in heaven and it says his bride has made herself ready. And we pondered, what does that mean that the bride has made herself ready? When we look at all of the action, all of the, all of the activity that we just talked about, the groom does most of the activity. So the groom goes to the place of the bride. He pays this bride price. He, he supplies this ketubah, this covenant of the, of, her, of the marriage relationship. He offers her the cup of acceptance. He goes back to his father's house, prepares the place where they'll dwell together. When his father gives his approval, he goes and receives her, takes him to that place. And then there's this, this wedding and this great celebration that he has prepared. The groom does all of that. So what is, what is the responsibility of the bride in all of that? What, what was she required? What was required of the bride? There's really only two things that we talked about that the bride was required to do. The first was to drink from the cup of acceptance, a symbolic way of saying, I do. I agree to be your bride. And the second thing was to immerse, to prepare herself for her upcoming weddings. Now, isn't it interesting in these two things that are required of the bride that we see the two ordinances that we observe as a church? The ordinance of the Lord's Supper where we take the cup And the ordinance of baptism by immersion. So I think you could think about the first time that you participated in the Lord's Supper and drank the cup. Is that being symbolic of the time when you said yes to Jesus? Yes, I will be your bride. And then every time you observe that after that, it's like it's it's, it's like an anniversary where you remembered back to that first time when you agreed to be the bride of Christ. And then think about. How determined Ananya was to immerse in those waters to be, to be prepared for her upcoming wedding. And, and, and how determined Jesus was to be immersed in the living waters of the Jordan River. So, have you said yes to Jesus? And, and are drinking the cup of communion? And have you followed through in believer's baptism and been immersed to prepare yourself for this wedding that's going to happen in heaven one day? If not, I can't think of a better time than today, the start of this new year, to do that. Um, if you would like to start a conversation about this, you could talk to Adam or one of the staff. You could talk to me or one of the other elders. Or on the back of your chairs, there's a form. You could indicate that there and, and leave that at the commons. Um, but uh, don't let another gay, day go by until, until you've done that and accomplished that. Listen, thanks so much for... Um, for your attentiveness and allowing me to share this teaching with you. I'm going to have our worship team to come up and, and lead us in our Hallel portion of our service. And, uh, and uh, if you will, bow your heads and, and, uh, and let me pray over us. Heavenly Father, how marvelous is your word. And how, how, how can we thank you enough for all you've done for us? You came here on your first advent. You came to the place of your bride to enter into this covenant relationship. You paid the greatest price ever paid for a bride with your death on the cross. Through your Holy Spirit, you've given us a written covenant on our hearts. And you offer us the cup of acceptance. The cup that you drank perhaps on the cross. To enter into this covenant relationship with you. Even now, you've gone back to your father's house. And you're preparing a place where we'll dwell with you. And one day, 
One day there will be this messenger of God and this trumpet from God that will announce your, your second coming when you come for your bride. And there will be this great wedding and this celebration in heaven where, where the heavenly multitudes will be shouting hallelujah and it will sound like peals of thunder. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone has not said yes to you or followed through in believer's baptism, that maybe today would be the day. And, and Lord, we just give you all the praise and glory and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.